0: Hello and welcome to Saga 50 for 50 on Heritage Bites, produced by Heritage Mississauga. 2024 marks the 50th anniversary since the incorporation of the town of Mississauga, Port Credit and Streetsville to create the city we now know and love. In this special celebration of Mississauga, we invite you to join us as we walk down memory lane With 50 weeks of podcasts recounting incredible moments in this city's rich history, this is Saga 50 for 50.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Saga 50 for 50. My name is Justine Lynn, the Collections and Resource Lead at Heritage Mississauga.
2: And my name is Melissa Toss, the Social Media Coordinator with Heritage Mississauga. February is Black History Month, and so today we wanted to kick off this month with a discussion around early Black history in Mississauga.
1: This program has been ongoing for many years here, actually, at Heritage Mississauga, in the mid-2000s, a summer student at Heritage Mississauga named Erin Brewbreaker set out to capture early Black settlers in Mississauga over the course of a few summers. Her work was frankly unprecedented because it was the first time in our city's history that this subject matter had been researched and compiled at such length. Being the first person to undertake this massive project, she encountered many obstacles.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, She searched through microfilm page by page, census page by page, newspapers, and even council minutes. It was a daunting task.
1: And it became quite apparent that historically their story had not been recorded or photographed, unlike the stories of their Anglo-Saxon counterparts, which made her research very difficult. But ultimately, she was able to paint a picture of some of our earliest Black residents and what their lives were like, which is honestly pretty remarkable.
2: Over the years, we have continued this research. For example, when she was researching, she only had access to census records up to 1911. But now we have access to records up to 1931 and we have been able to build a very robust history that we present in our themed history
1: presentations all over the city. Usually our presentation is titled A Forgotten History question mark because honestly that was a really big fear especially prior to Aaron's work that these stories would be forgotten if people did not actively take steps to document it, share it and listen to it like you are right now.
2: Thankfully, it is cleared now, 20 years after the initial project, that these stories will not be forgotten. We are still talking about it, and you are still listening. So thank you for joining us today as we delve into a remembered history of Mississauga's earliest Black residents, this time on Saga 50 for 50. Before we begin, just a warning that some of the subject matter we will discuss in this podcast may be difficult or disturbing to some viewers. Listener discretion is advised.
1: I want to start off by discussing a little bit about the roots of slavery in Canada because honestly it's often overlooked in comparison to the United States. British colonies, including Canada, did indeed participate in the transatlantic slave trade between the 16th and 19th centuries. Both New France and Upper Canada had slaves. However, the first slaves were not of African origin, rather they were indigenous. Then later, African slaves were imported into the colony. After 1760, the number of Black slaves in the colony increased significantly due to an influx of American loyalists. There were approximately 4,200 slaves in Canada between 1671 and 1834. Now, that's not nothing, but it's also considerably lower than the southern United States. The reason for this is not mercy or a lack of racism, but rather because our economy was largely based on small farming and uh, the fur trade, not these large plantation-style crops where slavery flourished like in the southern United States. Canadians did, however, benefit from foreign slave economics.
2: Yes, Canada was definitely still connected to all of this slave economics and slavery and racism in general. You can even see this just by looking at what people ate and drank. White sugar being imported from the West Indies, particularly Jamaica and Cuba, were large plantations with scores of slaves toiled to produce white sugar from sugarcane. It would then be shipped to North America. So each time that Canadians bought such products, they were actively contributing to the slave economy. However, by the late 18th century, public opinion back in England was beginning to change. The society of affecting the abolition of the slave trade was formed in London, England in 1787. The abolitionist movement was not immediately successful, however. Progress came in 1793 when a bill was introduced aimed at abolishing the trade of supplying British territories with slaves. But this did not abolish slavery. It only made steps towards stopping the supply of slaves coming from Africa. Still, it started the conversation in Britain around this institution of slavery.
1: Perhaps one of the biggest events to turn public opinion against the institution of slavery was the Zong Massacre. In 1781, a British slave ship known as the Zong began to run out of water. Their solution? To tie up 130 enslaved Africans and throw them overboard. If that wasn't bad enough, the slavers actually filed a claim for the loss of their quote-unquote cargo insurance company, however, refused to pay and the dispute went to court in the UK. The ensuing trial found in the slavers' favour, as slaves at the time were not viewed as humans. They were viewed as mere objects to be owned and used as the owners saw fit.
2: This heinous decision was later overturned by the Chief Justice, the Earl of Mansfield, who, by the way, was caring for his nephew's daughter, ditto Elizabeth Bell, who was a mixed-race child. However, the overturning of this verdict stopped short of true justice. Freedman Ola de Aquino worked unsuccessfully to have the slavers tried for murder. The publicity circus around this trial put the issues of slavery on the front pages in Britain, spurring the abolitionist movement forward.
1: In 1793, Lieutenant Governor Sir John Graves Simcoe passed a bill for the gradual abolition of slavery in Upper Canada. Any men and women currently enslaved would stay that way until their death, and children born to those slaves after 1793 would be free after the age of 25, and no new slaves could be imported. The act was met with intense opposition and did not ultimately end slavery in Upper Canada. Between
2: 1791 to 1800, 1,340 voyages across the Atlantic Ocean transported approximately 400,000 slaves. And between 1801 to 1807, approximately 266,000 slaves were brought to the Americas. Then in 1807, the Act for the Abolition of the Slave Trade in the British Empire was passed. The Slave Trade Act, did not abolish slavery. It ended the transportation and trade of slaves. However, it did not stop the sale of slaves already in Canada.
1: Then, on August 1st, 1834, the day finally came. The British government freed all slaves within the empire and outlawed slavery indefinitely. At this time, Upper Canada had a small number of men and women still enslaved, approximately less than 50 people. And this is really due to all the acts and bills that had come before making gradual steps to limit and ultimately end slavery. With the abolition of slavery in Upper Canada, now Ontario, the movement of fugitive slaves, otherwise known as freedom seekers, into Canada from the United States began in earnest.
2: Slavery began in the American South in 1619 in Virginia. Massachusetts was the first colony to legalize slavery in 1641. The Royal African Company was established in 1660 to transport slaves, largely from Africa. Unlike the economy in upper Canada, tobacco and cotton were major plantation crops that needed lots of working hands, which is where the slaves came in. Slavery legally authorized violence and put systemic measures in place to dehumanize slaves. However, there were those who disapproved of this slave-based economy. The growing abolitionist movement in North America was a major factor in the American Civil War.
1: The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 in the United States required that all escaped slaves upon capture were to be returned to their masters. It authorized slave catchers to get the job done. However, this was very unpopular in the American North. As many did not like the slave-catching parties that came up north into their towns, causing panic. They were known to be ruthless, targeting anyone who looked like they might be runaway slaves. This really propelled the abolitionist movement for white northerners because they could no longer ignore it and excuse the practice as something that happened down in the south. It was right on their doorstep. For the Black population, even those who had been freed, they were no longer safe anywhere in the country. From 1850 to 1860, the Black population in Canada increased from 35,000 to 60,000.
2: Yes, Canada was seen as a land of freedom to start a new life. The Underground Railroad operated from 1820 to 1865. It was essentially a network of secret routes, uh, safe houses, and people known as quote-unquote conductors that assisted former and fugitive slaves to escape to Canada. Many secret codes were used to avoid detection, such as solitary lanterns denoting safe houses. Estimates suggest that between 30,000 to 100,000 freedom seekers escaped to Canada via the railroad.
1: The journey was a harrowing one. Freedom seekers followed the North Star, traveling at night and using a network of routes and safe houses to reach Canada. Local terminals into Canada include Oakville, Hamilton, Toronto, and Orangeville. Upon arrival, freedom seekers tended to disperse, making them hard to trace. They hid their identities and ancestry for fear that slave catchers would find them even over the border. Here, they were relatively safe, but that does not mean that they did not experience intense prejudice, because, well, they did. Further, the skeletons of enslaved labour traditions and racial hierarchies continue to exist here in Canada.
2: However, along their road to freedom, they would also have met many who were willing to help them. For example, Nathaniel and Benjamin Paul were active abolitionists in Albany who helped to organize the Wilberforce Settlement in Ontario. Both brothers were ministers in the African Baptist Church. They played significant early roles in the establishment of the Underground Railroad. Many who would eventually come to the Toronto area had connections to the Paul
1: brothers. Another figure was Harriet Tubman. She was born a slave and escaped in 1849, traveling at night to avoid slave catchers for five weeks. She settled in St. Catharines and worked tirelessly as an abolitionist and a spy during the Civil War. She reportedly rescued 70 people during 13 trips to Maryland. She was known for never losing a single person on her voyages. Another figure was Oakville native Robert Wilson.
2: He was a white ship captain aboard the Lady Colborne. In this position, he transported countless freedom seekers from Ohio to Oakville Harbor in the hidden, sorry, to Oakville Harbor, hidden in the hold with grain shipments. Yet another Oakville abolitionist was James Wesley Hill, known as Canada Jim. He was born a slave in Maryland and escaped in the early 1840s. He crossed the border in a packing box and settled on a strawberry farm near Oakville. However, he risked his life and recapture numerous times by leading an estimated 700 freedom seekers from Maryland to Oakville over time. He even gave refugees work on his farm.
1: Those who came to Canada often moved away from the border and established their own settlements, including the Wilberforce Settlement, which was active between 1829 to 1850, and the Oro Settlement between 1819 and 1900. The Don Settlement in Dresden, Ontario, was another similar such settlement established by Josiah Henson, who was born to slavery and escaped into Canada in 1830. Henson is perhaps best known today as the inspiration behind the book Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, a white abolitionist. Published in 1852 in Philadelphia, it was written for a white audience, so it contains some pretty horrendous stereotyping and problematic language. However, it was just the thing to make white Americans sympathetic to the abolitionist cause. It was the second highest selling book in the 1800s after the Bible, and many argue that it actually set the stage for what would become the American Civil War.
2: Back in Canada, however, we had the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada. It was established by George Brown, the founder of the Toronto Globe newspaper, in 1851. It focused on abolishing slavery in North America, protecting freedom seekers, and supporting the Underground Railroad. There is a really interesting local connection with this, actually. Uh, Reverend Robert Orr of Streetsville's St. Andrew's Church was a vice president of the Anti-Slavery Society. And interestingly, at the time, Brown was going into politics and actually becoming one of Canada's founding fathers. Many Black Canadians supported Brown's political rise, and some historians have argued that without Black Canadians, Canada literally would not have become Canada.
1: Aside from the Toronto Globe newspaper, there were other abolitionist publications, including The North Star, The Voice of a Fugitive, and The Provincial Freeman, all of which helped build momentum in the fight for abolition. People like Frederick Douglass are well-known in our psyche for their work with the press. Douglass escaped slavery in Maryland to become an abolitionist and suffrage leader and a brilliant orator, writing three autobiographies and founding the North Star newspaper. His slogan was, right is of no sex truth is of no color god is the father of us all and we are all brethren in 1851 he was the inaugural guest speaker for the anti-slavery society of canada in toronto mary ann shad Carey founded another newspaper christening her paper the provincial freeman in 1853 after immigrating from washington as a free woman she was the first female publisher in canada and focused on empowering black canadians
2: Notably, the Provincial Freeman had a few references to the Peel region, which suggests that there were many more Black people here than we realize. On April 22nd, 1854, a quote-unquote Moses from Albion, which is in Peel County, wrote an editorial complimenting the Freeman and pledging to send at least 10 more subscriptions. In 1855, a Provincial Freeman agent from Brampton appears, Dr. Jesse Burke which means that the paper was widely distributed here. Henry Bibb of The Voice of the Fugitive Newspaper was another contemporary of Douglas and Shad Carey. He became an abolitionist after escaping slavery. He settled in Sandwich, Ontario, now Windsor, and published his autobiography in 1850, then founded the Refugee Home Society in 1851 for freedom seekers, who needed help establishing themselves in Canada. He was also an executive of the Anti-Slavery
1: Society of Canada. Just like the provincial Freeman, Peel Region is mentioned in the Voice of Fugitive newspaper. I found a letter written by Reverend Samuel Ringwald Ward to Henry Bibb that mentioned Toronto Township, now known as Mississauga and Peel as places he had visited. To give a bit of background, Ward fled slavery as a child and settled in New Jersey. However, he got into a bit of trouble when he rescued a Black man by the name of William Jerry Henry from U.S. authorities in 1851. Remember the Fugitive Slave Act I mentioned earlier. He was forced to flee to Upper Canada, where he began working at the Provincial Freeman. His speaking skills were praised far and wide, and he began lecturing for abolition for the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada across Upper Canada and Britain. He was incredibly outspoken in his belief that abolition was only the beginning. Racial equality was the ultimate goal. This was a challenge to white abolitionists who were so focused on abolition, but eh, not so much on equality and fighting discrimination. In March of 1852, he wrote to Henry Bibb about the stops on his speaking tour, including Toronto Township, now Mississauga. He writes,
3: Since I last wrote, I have been traveling through the western part of York, Peel, and Halton counties. Albion, Esquizing, Chincouzi, the Gore of Toronto, Toronto, and Erin are among the townships through which I passed. The soil and the lands are every way encouraging and thrifty. One would scarcely believe that such an abundance of good land, so well situated, so thoroughly tilled and so abundant in production was to be found in this voting country. Instead of a wilderness, it is a succession of densely populated townships, cut at right angles every mile and a half by government roads and abounding with such farms as are the pride and glory of western New York and Ohio. A better agricultural country, as this province does not lie out of doors.
1: His
2: recommendation of the area was a clear sign to early Black settlers that Historic Mississauga was as good a place as any to settle. So what of the early Black settlers? With such a recommendation of our land, you would think we would have quite a thriving community.
1: Except that's not what we see. Historic Mississauga was not a place where Black immigrants congregated. In Peel region, there are no records of an African Methodist church, Black schools, or an established Black community or settlement like those of Wilberforce, Don, or Oro. Some did come, likely the distance from the American border and geographic obscurity were incentives, but they did not tend to stay long. We have no photos of them living here and very little evidence even of their existence.
2: And I think we need to talk about why that is, that when a white family down the road has books and articles written on them and their existence... And we have to consider the process of how information was collected. There were certainly limits to how information was recorded. For example, a census record is only names and dates, not hopes and dreams. Census records are also only collected every 10 years. So if people came and went between census years, they would not appear on the census. Since Black residents tended to be more transitory than their white counterparts, it is not surprising that we are likely missing a lot of the early Black population. Further, primary sources do not always contextualize what they are saying. So even if they mention a Black resident in the newspaper, for example, we do not know what happened before or after, which would be valuable information. There's also a privilege to record. Many former slaves were not allowed to learn how to read and write. How could they realistically write a diary of their lives? Mind you, some did, but many never got that opportunity.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And further to that, why is information being recorded in the first place? And who is doing that recording? Everyone has a bias, everyone. And if those recording do not view the Black story as something of interest, well, they can and they will write them out of history. I mean, and lastly, let's say that um, early Black residents were valued and approached and given that opportunity to have their voices heard by their white neighbors. Would they feel comfortable telling that story? Probably not. Exactly. And so I'm not saying that early Black settlers in historic Mississauga did not exist because they did. And we'll talk about some of those people. But what I am saying is that their histories are not recorded in the same way or frequency as their white counterparts. And for this reason, it made the task of researching the history both incredibly important and incredibly difficult.
2: So Justine, we should talk about those people that we did find who did not fall through the cracks, who actually we can see on the historical record here in Mississauga.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the first recorded Black resident is Dina Green, who was recorded as a servant or perhaps a slave of the Chisholm family, who essentially helped found Oakville. Now, it's not surprising that our first black resident would have come through them because they were quite well-known locally as people who would take freedom seekers under their wing. I do not know if this is the case or even if she was a slave or free by the time that she came to Historic Mississauga. What we do know is that she came here with Jane Chisholm, who married Joseph Silverthorne in 1807. Together, they lived in the Dixie area very close to the Dixie Union Chapel. She was even said to have helped deliver many of Jane's children. Dina died prior to 1861, as we do not see her on that census year, and she is said to have been buried at the Dixie Union Cemetery, though her grave is unmarked.
2: Yes, and after her death, Fanny Paul, known as Old Fan, and her daughter Letty Paul came to live with the Silverthorns. It is believed that Fanny was a former slave and that she came to Canada via the Underground Railroad. It is possible that they somehow came into contact with the Paul brothers we mentioned earlier from the Wilberforce settlement, because a lot of people who were saved by the brothers rejected their own last names, which were often the name of their former slave owner. And they preferred instead to choose a freedom name for themselves. And many people that crossed paths with the Paul brothers ended up taking the Paul name as a sign of freedom. So this might have been what happened with Fanny and Letty Paul, though it is unclear.
1: According to local historian Kathleen Hicks, there's record of Fanny trying to get married at the Dixie Union at Chapel, but they wouldn't marry her because she was Black. Legend has it that Fanny was famous for her salt-raising biscuits, and that de- recipe died with her. These two women lived and worked at the Silverthorne home until the death of Fanny and the marriage of Letty. Letty was married to William Hutchinson in 1894. The event was covered in the Brampton Conservator, and it hints that the Pauls were actually very loved in their community. Her wedding is described as...
4: On Wednesday, September 15th at 5 o'clock at the Pretty Little Church of St. John was a day to be long remembered by those whose happy lot fell to be there. It was the marriage of Miss Letty Paul to Mr. William Hutchinson of Toronto. The bride was attired in a red cashmere dress, tan shoes and hose, drab hat, and a smiling countenance. The groom wore a black suit, dude pants, open vest, Prince Albert coat, knockabout hat, red tie, and piccadilly shoes. The knot was tied by the Reverend Ralph Hines. The church was crowded to the doors. There were people from all parts of the section. Some came them a distance of five miles to pay their respect to one of our esteemed citizens. After the knot was securely tied, and the newly married were proceeding to the residence of the bride's guardian at Cherry Hill, they were literally covered with showers of rice and good wishes. Arriving at the house, they were seated to a very sumptuous spread of all the delicacies of the season after which they were escorted to the CPR, depot by a number of friends. At the station, there were nearly 100 people to wish them bon voyage and much joy as they stepped on the express to spend their honeymoon in Toronto, Oakville, and other inland towns, after which they will return and take up housekeeping in Mr. Robert Palletsville on the middle road, east of Corn Dilly Valley. Hi,
2: the depiction of the silver thorns in this piece is very interesting. They are referred to as her guardians, not her employers or her bosses. It also seems that she was greatly respected member of the community, not just simply a servant uh, of one of the prominent families. As the census data shows, she lived with them since she was a small child and she may have even been born there and likely became somewhat of a member of the family. After her marriage, she left. So that was the end of the Pauls at Cherry Hill.
1: Now, another resident that we see in census records is Benedict Duncan, who was a slave in Maryland for 28 years. He had the unusual opportunity to go to school, and um, he decided to run away when he was in fear of being sold. When his master's business started to go downhill, he wrote that he had no trouble of getting off, i.e., escaping and that he walked 150 miles of the way. He crossed the border in the mid-1850s. It is not known how he made his way to this region, but he resurfaces again in the 1861 census as living in Peel County. The records show he was renting land and growing wheat, peas, and carrots to support him and his family. Renting land was very common for Black settlers at the time, since many had no opportunity to uh, buy land uh, for themselves benedict duncan married elizabeth
2: in 1859 they had their first child harriet delia duncan born in the toronto township which is now mississauga however the 1861 census shows record of only one child jeremiah born that year the loss of a child was all too common for settlers during this time period According to the records, he was doing well for himself with one calf and a horse and two pigs to show for his work. He eventually moved his family to the Oakville area in the 1880s and became a cornerstone of the Black community there.
1: I think this story also highlights one of the main reasons why we do not see Black residents typically staying in historic Mississauga for long periods of time. We were surrounded by other towns that had much more established Black communities, So most people would honestly just rather go there where they already had an established community.
2: Yes, yeah. And one of the people who did stay here their entire life was actually Alexander Hunter, who lived in Port Credit from the 1860s until his death around 1888. Little is known of his life prior to arriving in Port Credit, but we do know that he was married to a white Irish woman named Bridget. And together they lived in a three-room shack on the bank of the Credit River, adjacent to what is now Riverside School. He worked doing odd jobs for a man named James Robinson Shaw, um, who owned a local grocery store and was an avid churchgoer at the First Methodist Church. Some of Hunter's tasks included sweeping the store or dusting the church for Sunday service.
1: One story is remembered in Betty Clarkson's The Story of Port Credit, Credit Valley Gateway. One Saturday morning, Hunter was sent to sweep and dust the church in preparation for service the next morning. When Sunday morning came, Shaw couldn't find the key to open the church, so he ventured over to Hunter's house to get it, and after searching for some time, he found it on the floor beside Hunter's bed. The story goes that it had fallen out of Alexander's hair when he knelt down to say his nightly prayers the night before. What a key was doing in his hair is Honestly, a mystery. Uh, But it's kind of meant to be this endearing story, meant to evoke his great devotion to faith. In
2: 1887, Alexander Hunter appears in the town minutes.
4: Resolved that the petition of James Shaw and 32 others in reference to Alexander Hunter and wife, that the Reeve be instructed to have them placed in the House of Providence or some other public institution and thereby cared for.
2: In other words, they sent Mr. Hunter to the poorhouse. It seems like a callous thing to do, but these were the times. A year later, in 1888, he appears again, but it is clear he has passed away.
4: Moved ...by Mr. Cook and seconded by Mr. Price that the sum of $5 be paid for burial for Alexander Hunter and $4 for removing Mrs. Hunter and Indigent to the House of Providence...
1: It is a sad end to the story. Mr. Hunter dies and Mrs. Hunter is taken away alone without her husband. Interestingly, however, another Black man in Port Credit was treated in a much different fashion. Samuel Carter lived in Port Credit in the 1850s until his death in 1888. So they're really contemporaries here. During his escape from slavery in the United States, he lost both his legs due to frostbite from the exposure to elements. He was affectionately known as Old Sam to the locals and lived on the aptly-named road Old Sam's Lane, which is now Wesley Street. One early resident of the area remembers Sam riding a white horse, pulling a wagon full of people. All through the year of 1887, it seems Samuel Carter was having a very hard time making ends meet, And the Toronto Township Council, on at least one occasion, made money available for Mr. Carter. And later in the next year, when his condition actually worsened, the council took action.
4: Moved by Mr. Jackson and seconded by Mr. Price that the petition of B.B. Lind and 22 others be received and that Mr. Lind and Mr. Oliphant be instructed to have Samuel Carter removed to some place of comfort and have his wants attended to for the present time.
2: When Samuel Carter died in October of 1888, the council looked after his needs and internment expenses. This story of residents banding together shows that while Black settlers did indeed face racism, they also found kindness in our region. It seemed that overall, the residents of Port Credit had good rapport with Mr. Carter, while Mr. Hunter experienced a chillier reception. We do not know why the two men were treated vastly different, it could be that the townsfolk felt bad for Samuel Carter, who was left severely disabled from his flight to safety. It could also be that the townspeople did not like that Alexander Hunter was married to a white woman. We really do not know, but it is clear that different people experienced different treatment.
1: Another story out of Port Credit was of a Dr. Ben. He's documented in several early Port Credit histories. And as the Various stories go. Dr. Ben was born in Africa, then captured and sold into slavery in Virginia. He reportedly escaped to Canada in the 1840s and came to Port Credit. He is believed to be Benjamin Workman, who was born in 1810 and died in 1885. He appears in census records as a farm laborer and was married to Hannah Workman and attended the Methodist Church, likely alongside Alexander Hunter and others.
2: Port credit was likely where most of those coming from the U.S. settled because it was closest to other areas that had thriving Black communities like Toronto and Oakville. Port Credit was also a bit more built up than some of the surrounding areas.
1: A family that we see just outside Port Credit in Clarkson is the Thomas Dorsey family. Catherine Ann Thomas was a former enslaved woman from Maryland. Catherine was mixed, likely the child of her slave owner. Yet another assault from the slave owner resulted in the birth of her daughter, Mary, born around 1846. Around this time, Catherine is freed. It's possible that she is freed by the slave owner so that her child, Mary, would not also become a slave, uh, but this is really unclear. Catherine marries John Dorsey, uh, then a man who was still enslaved at that time. Around the time that they had their own child, George... Born in 1849, they decided to run away. Now, we're not entirely sure why, but I believe that they were afraid that perhaps George would become a slave like his father. They ultimately flee into Upper Canada for a better life, but interestingly, they use the Thomas name, so that would be Catherine's surname, rather than the father's uh, Dorsey last name. The family believes that this is because they were trying to mask their identity. According to family lore, Catherine's former slave owner made several fruitless attempts to steal her and her daughter, Mary. So when they show up in 1851, living on South Down Road, they actually change certain elements of the story to mask their identity. For example, they list the children as being born in Canada when we know that they were born in the United States. To me, this reads as a very scared family that is going to do anything to keep their children safe. They later moved to Canesville, a little village in what is now Brantford. Then they purchased a farm in Stanhope Township in Halliburton in the 1870s, where they lived until their deaths.
2: It is truly a remarkable story going from slavery to owning their own property to pass down to their children. Most Black settlers would never achieve such dreams. While the Thomas Dorsey family used historic Mississauga as a transitory place, but found success and a home outside of our borders, the Ross family were one of the only ones who found success here. Their story starts in Urbana, Middlesex, Virginia, on the plantation of James Ross, a Scottish planter who owned
1: the Cedar Park Farm Plantation. In most of the histories, James Ross is listed as a bachelor without children, but that did not mean that he lacked. Or female companionship or even descendants. Sometime before his death in 1790, Clement Nicholson had gifted his friend James Ross with a beautiful mixed slave named Mary Woodford in the expectation that James would eventually free her. He had five children with his slave Mary Woodford. Whether their relationship was consensual or not is not really up for discussion here because ultimately slaves were not in a position of power to give consent or not. Um, And it is clear that this quote-unquote relationship between James Ross and Mary Woodford was not always an easy one, and she ran away from him at least once. In November of 1794, we know Mary ran away because he puts out a runaway slave ad for her safe return to him. However, it is interesting that he waits several months until spring of 1795 to report her as a runaway, likely because he was looking for her himself. The ad is perhaps the best description we have of her. The ad reads...
5: 30 dollars reward ran away from the subscriber living in middlesex county about 12 miles from urbana on rappahannock river on tuesday the november 4th last a mulatto woman slave named mary about 26 years of age and took with her two of her children one a boy sucking at the breast named billy the other a girl named lydia about nine years old of a yellow complexion like her mother and has three fingers on her left hand rather doubled occasioned by a burn the mother is very sensible and artful likes much to be in the company of white people and can go very well dressed having carried a variety of clothes with her she was sometime ago seen at nominee in westmoreland county and may probably have got into the state of maryland but further suspect she may have got to norfolk or some other maritime town as she likes much to be aboard vessels and in the company of sailors Whoever will take up said mulatto woman and children and deliver them to me in Middlesex or secure them in any jail and give me information so as I can get them in again will be paid the above reward by Mr. James Ross, merchant in Urbana or by William Jesse, Middlesex County, April 15, 1795.
2: we do not know exactly what happened but mary ended up returning to the plantation sometime before 1801 mary woodford died and after her death james ross freed the five children born of mary woodford and two children from another slave an emancipation record was filed in the Middlesex County Courthouse in 1802, which reads,
6: "I, James Ross of town of Urbana in the county of Middlesex. Considering that my mulatto slave, Mary Woodford, now deceased, and her daughter, Nancy Woodford, were the gifts of my two good friends, the late Clement Nicholson and Annie, his wife, as by their deed recorded, and knowing that the donors had the welfare of the said Mary so much at heart and also for divers other causes and considerations be thereunto, moving do emancipate and set free all the children of the said Mary to wit Nancy Whitford, Francis Whitford, William Whitford, David Whitford, and George Whitford, with all the future increase of them or either of them, 14th day of July in the year of our Lord, 1,801.
1: One of those set free was Mary Woodford and James Ross's child, George Woodford Ross. George Woodford was born about 1796, and he was just a baby when his mother died. He lived with James Ross at the Cedar Park Farm, and at some point he was apprenticed as a carpenter. Around 1833, George Woodford moved to Upper Canada and took the name George Woodford Ross.
2: George Woodford Ross married Diadema Paul in 1834 in Upper Canada, a daughter of Reverend Benjamin Paul of Wilberforce, whom we mentioned earlier. Reverend Benjamin Paul was a Baptist minister, and he had his daughters educated, even teaching at the school in Wilberforce. When George Woodford Ross moved to Upper Canada, he was unable to sign his name on the deeds of his property. But three years later, he could write well, and some of his letters survive. It is quite possible that his wife was responsible for his education.
1: What makes the family striking in the historic record was that they owned land. This is in large part due to the inheritance George was left in his father's will. While many early Black families could only rent if they were lucky, they were really quite an anomaly. An excerpt from James Ross's will reads as follows.
6: All the rest and residue of my estate except what is otherwise disposed of by this my will shall be sold to best advantage and the proceeds divided into eight parts and paid over. Two to George Woodford, two to James Corbin, one to William Woodford, one to David Woodford, one to Fanny Woodford and one to Corbin Lane.
2: Likely thanks to this inheritance, George bought land in Toronto Township in 1836 near modern-day Cawthra and Bernanthorpe Roads and built a thriving farm, which he named Cedar Park Farm, after the Virginia farm he grew up on. The couple had 11 children, and the farm remained in the family for several generations.
1: It is truly remarkable that we have now uncovered this history because as the generations of Ross family members went on, It was increasingly hard to recognize their Black ancestry. George Woodford Ross certainly was mixed himself. His mother was mixed and his father was white. Even in certain censuses, he told the enumerators that he was mixed, while in others, he said he was just Scottish. However, you have to really think critically about these primary sources. For example, what questions were the census enumerators asking? Was the question, what is your race or ethnicity? Or was it what is your father's ethnicity? This is why we believe his answers changed over census years, simply because of the way the questions of race were being asked.
2: Further, over the years, many of the Ross sons moved westward, so it appeared that the Ross name disappeared from historic Mississauga. However, after carefully examining the family genealogy, it was discovered that the family married into the surrounding white families, For example, one of the daughters married a cook and continued to live on the property. A grandson of George Woodford Ross named Private Wilfred Winstanley Cook actually fought and died in the First World War. However, by that time, it appeared that the descendants basically blended in with their white neighbors. Even many of the descendants did not know about their mixed race heritage until more recently. Their story was probably destined to be forgotten, if not for the work of past researchers, as well as the family. We would like to therefore acknowledge and to thank not only Aaron Brubaker, but also Heather Yanu, Guy Lynn and Matthew Wilkinson for their help in uncovering this story. I am glad that this family was not overlooked because the Rosses were perhaps the most successful Black family in historic Mississauga. Are those the only Black families that we see in the 19th century here?
1: No, there were others, but these are the ones that we have been able to trace and tell more of their story. However, there are many more that we are actively researching to this day. The first place we will look oftentimes is in the census. And one of the most perplexing families uh, in census records is the Spencer family in Cooksville. They show up in the 1861 census as the parents, John and Jane Spencer, both being born in the United States and the children born in Canada. Little John Jr., only eight years old at the time, is not in school, but rather working as a laborer. Then in 1871, the father is no longer listed. Where did he go? Jane is not listed as a widow, so he is likely not dead. But where is he? Then the trail goes cold. End of story, right? Wrong. In
2: 1911, we find a daughter, Sarah Spencer, born in 1855 in the Coburg Asylum for the Insane. What happened between 1871 and 1911 that landed her there? The asylum was known for its poor conditions as it acted as overflow from other overcrowded institutions around Ontario. This means that she could have come from anywhere in Ontario. It does not help us narrow down where she was before this event. Later, she was transferred from the Ontario Hospital, another asylum in Toronto, where she died with no family to speak of. She was basically just buried in a pauper's grave, and that's it. It begs the question, what happened to her, and how did she end up there? And where is the rest of the family? We do not know.
1: Another family we see is William and Marianne Bell in 1861, living in Arendelle. There's also a child of 10 years old named John Shepard, spelled S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D, living with them. It is possible that this family is one and the same, or at least perhaps related, to a Black family living near Georgetown area that pops up in the following census with the last name Shepard, spelled S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. Many things seem similar, but there's also a lot of things that are just different. So it's honestly hard to say for sure. And unfortunately, we cannot confirm any connection at this time.
2: With all this talk about these early Black families here in historic Mississauga, we have to take a step back and think about how these families would have lived and what their lives would have been like. I think we can conclude very easily that there was discrimination here, as there was all over the country. The question rather becomes, to what extent? As we saw with the stories of Alexander Hunter and Samuel Carter, not everyone was treated the same.
1: The degree people experienced racism often depended on where they lived or worked. Often, areas with large populations of cultural or ethnic minorities meant heightened levels of distrust from the majority population. Particularly when the white population felt threatened economically or otherwise, tensions often arose. As more refugees entered Canada from the United States, the more unwelcome they felt. Systemic employment, housing, and service discrimination were almost always issues. Those who create the rules and regulations of our country were typically white Anglo-Saxon men who are not really known for their cultural sensitivity.
2: One of the most well-known people to experience discrimination here in historic Mississauga was none other than Solomon Northrup. You may know him. He wrote a little book called 12 Years a Slave, and they made it into a big blockbuster movie a few years ago. Yes, that's Solomon Northrup. Solomon was born free circa 1807 in Hebron, New York. After moving to Saratoga Spring, New York in 1834, he found work on the Champlain Canal, and as a skilled carpenter. Solomon was well known as a skilled fiddle player. However, in 1841, at the age of 32, Solomon was kidnapped and sold into slavery, ripped away from his wife, children, and the freedom he had been born into. Solomon was sold to a preacher from Louisiana. Over the next several years, Solomon was sold twice more and endured a great deal of hardship. On January 4th, 1853, after living 12 years a slave, Solomon regained his freedom and rejoined his family in New York. Solomon wrote about his experiences in 12 years a slave in 1853.
1: Now his autobiography was an instant success, an instant hit overnight really. It sparked outrage. How could a free man have experienced this? But it also garnered a lot of support for the abolition cause. Um, So while in Canada in the summer of 1857, Solomon hosted a series of lectures supported by the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada. Solomon found his way to Streetsville that August and was scheduled to speak at the town hall. I do not know if this is why, but I suspect the reason he came to Streetsville in particular was because Streetsville's Reverend Robert Orr was a vice president of the Anti-Slavery Society at this time. However, Salman received a hostile reception and was actually jeered off the stage, preventing his lecture from continuing. Thankfully, Salman was safely escorted out of the hall by Streetsville hotel keeper Robert Stevens. A bulletin of the incident reads as follows. <laughs>
3: states that when Solomon Northup, a fugitive slave from New Orleans, was about to commence a lecture at the town hall on the subject of slavery in the United States, he was interrupted by cries of down with the brain the blasted Sambo and more. The noise and confusion was so great and so universal on the part of the crowd that Northup was forced to leave the hall under the escort of friends.
2: Interestingly, Solomon's whereabouts after his visit to Streetsville are unknown, and the location and circumstances of his death are also uncertain, but it is presumed that he died sometime that year or the next. Now, obviously, this is a terrible incident, but it's important to recognize
1: our entire history, the good and bad. Last year, Heritage Mississauga erected a plaque to Solomon Northrop in Streetsville, but we acknowledge that more work needs to be done. Colonial reference markers, place names, and remembrances often do not make reference to Canada's dark period of history. Many early families who practically founded our city had connections to slavery and Black servitude. Many historic sites have colonial era ties and have not connected programming to slavery and discrimination experienced in Canada. Further, stories of early Black residents are extremely hard to trace and often hidden in plain sight. However, things are starting to change. Our thoughts are evolving rapidly, and people are caring and trying to learn more. So I believe that there is hope for the future.
2: Ultimately, we need to care about and uplift Black voices. We need to reevaluate and address systemic issues in our quest to make Mississauga more equitable. In 2020, the Mississauga Black Caucus was created to identify areas for systemic change within the city of Mississauga and to help lead community consultations. They produced a report in 2022, which discussed various recommendations for the city of Mississauga.
1: So things are happening. And now this is the time when we tell you how you can help us affect change. If you have any photos, memories, or even just information about living in Mississauga as a member of the Black community here, please contact us at resource at heritagemississauga.org to help us learn and add to our own knowledge base.
2: And with that, Justine and I would like to thank you for joining us this week on Saga 50 for 50. We hope you will join us again next week.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's installment of Saga 50 for 50. Help us keep celebrating the 50th anniversary of the city of Mississauga by following Heritage Bites wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out Heritage Mississauga on all our social media platforms and follow hashtag saga 50 for 50 to stay up to date on all of Mississauga's 50th anniversary celebrations. This is Heritage Mississauga signing off until next time.